Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Alex, when you're ready. Kablammy. You need to give it a bit more dead air. I was talking when you said that. That was a shit intro. We're gonna shit intro. intro. <laughs> I think we're gonna keep it in, but you can do it one more time, Alex. Kablamo? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Kablamo. Nice. We're starting everyone with the sound effect these days. Welcome to episode seventy-two of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. With me is Will, and joining us today via the interwebs is Charlie Athanasiu from Melbourne Strength Culture, or well, as they call him in more bogan areas, Charlie Athanasius. Use. <laughs> Plurals. That's it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today, man. Yeah, thank you, dude. No, no stress. Thanks for having me. It's been uh, I'm excited. This is actually my first. I've, obviously, we've hosted our Melbourne Strength Culture podcast for quite some time, which we are giving a bit of a revamp uh, starting tomorrow. But this is my first time ever coming on a podcast. So, oh well, thrilled to have you, dude. Yeah. Do you want to give us a quick yeah. rundown of who you are? Who who am I? So I am obviously strength slash powerlifting coach from Melbourne Strength Culture. Um, I worked with Jamie Smith. We we started together and then we obviously wanted to open our own uh, place. So I've been there with him from the start at Melbourne Strength Culture, which is three years now. Um, I'm a a try-to-powerlift myself. But that's basically my background. I've got got an undergrad in uh, exercise science as well. Um, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much me, not too, not too much else, but other than I'm from Melbourne strength culture, which I know is sort of, we're starting to get a, a little bit of a reputable name around Australia and even internationally. We had muscle doc uh, a couple of weeks ago host his uh, seminar at, at the gym. So that was pretty cool. Uh, we've got potentially barbell medicine coming next year. Um, so some cool, cool shit happening at the, at the gym. So yeah, that's pretty much me. My, so, my background. Uh, yeah, what we got you on today to talk about was um, auto-regulation and RPE training. So let's just yeah. dive right into it. Um, dive in, man. Let's start off with um, what are the advantages of auto-regulation within powerlifting training? So definitely the advantages for powerlifting training is obviously capitalizing on the good days and down-regulating on the not-so-good days. Um, obviously, we're not living in a... Uh, in a controlled environment, our life stresses, daily life, training is all different. It's fluctuating each and every single day. So being able to just fluctuate with those um, those changes on a day-to-day basis and utilizing RPE to gauge, it's literally just a tool to gauge intensity for that given day so that we are putting the right weight on the bar any given day rather than allowing a sort of set plan that we've planned out for the next four weeks, six weeks, taking control. Um, so that'd be the main and also just being a bit more reactive to training, um, <clears throat> seeing what the athlete is actually doing and how they're responding to a block rather than anticipating what they're going to respond like. Um, and then there's also injuries as well, which not a lot of people talk about. Um, something me and my, we talk about at Strength Culture is actually using water regulation for coming back from injuries. Um, it can be very beneficial for that. Um, so that's they're definitely the advantages. The main advantage is that we see at, at Strength Culture for using it. And we use it... Not almost exclusively. Our idea is that in an ideal world, we'd love for everyone to be able to use it. That's not the reality though. Um, There are athletes that we have that don't use it and we do use prescribed loads because at the end of the day, 
people are hiring us as coaches to get them stronger, not to use RPE or to learn RPE. Um, and RPE is a skill. So just like anyone would walk in the gym, you wouldn't expect them to squat, you know, low bar on their back. You take them through the appropriate progressions of goblet squat to box with a mini band, depending on who they are, where they fall into the progression stream. So it can, it can take time, but they're coming to you to get strong. So we'd like everyone to use it, but that's not the case. And we do have guys that don't use it. Um, and we have to use variations of or prescribed loads um, for, for those individuals. Okay. So those are some compelling advantages um, to using auto-regulation or using RPE in training. Before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of how you go about doing it and how you go about educating lifters to use it, I'd actually just like to know how you came to use auto-regulation in your own coaching. What realizations led you to thinking it was the best way to go? Um, so for me, I was kind of thrown in the deep end with it. I ran a very... Uh, a self-program, a very conjugate sort of style method of just your heavy day, three by five, and then an inverse day, like a technical day, eight, eight doubles or 10 doubles. Um, so Jamie and I both ran that before we opened up Strength Culture. And then I kept, I was playing Aussie Rules at that, at that stage and I kept doing my strength training. <clears throat> and then I realized that I probably wanted to learn a bit more and I'm like, I should hire a coach. Uh, and literally the first person I messaged was Bryce Krawcheck of Calgary Barbell, who was literally the first person I messaged, he responded that day and said, yeah, I'd love to take you on board. And um, he sent me my program and it was all RPE based. So I was just thrown in the deep end with it. Um, had no idea what I was doing, um, which has sort of, I think in, in hindsight, looking down has made me a better coach and I've, I've, I can teach it. I feel better now because I was thrown in the deep end with it. Um, because I had to sort of fumble my way and figure my own way out with it. Um, but then also Jamie was at the same time, he got Brett Gibbs to coach him and Brett Gibbs was almost use, using RPE exclusively with him. So we had this heavy influx of RPE uh, thrown upon us at Melbourne Strength Culture and um, that's sort of how we ended up starting to use auto-regulation. So I think it was heading outside of the sort of conventional methods that we see in Australia and, and going overseas for some coaching. Um, and I know you obviously, Alex had Annie Jezzarelli at one stage. Yeah, I was just going to say that. So I had a similar experience yeah. to you, Charlie. Um, I messaged Bryce Lewis and um, mm -hmm. he didn't have any coaching spots available, but he was um, hiring coaches for TSA and he got me in contact with Hanny and I started doing um, RPE training from the start of like, literally the day one of my powerlifting training in the middle of yeah. 2014 was RPE stuff. And it's probably about half of the time that I've been training, I've done RPE, half the time I've done set yeah. load stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely um, pros and cons for it. Uh, I'm definitely an advocate for it, but I do see there is downfalls with it. And I, I think off, more often than not, people who are an advocate for something will only talk about the positives, but there are definitely, you know, cons of using it uh, and can be downsides if not used correctly. You know, it's a tool. And the tool in the wrong hand with the wrong person can be used to to do damage rather than good. Yeah. So I, th yeah. I think um, you said something in your sort of preamble about RPE where you were saying one of the advantages is that is that it's reactive, and so training actually starts yeah. to starts to take account of um, how somebody is adapting to the training block that's presented to them. And the more that I think about um, training and adaptation, you know, over time, the more drawn I am to RPE approaches or to modifying the loads that people are training on a given day or within a week or whatever it happens to be 
so that the development of or like the progression of the training stimulus is actually in line with their progression and abilities rather than their anticipated progression or rather than just arbitrarily increasing loads with the hope that it will spur progression when there's no evidence that what we've done so far has worked. And so I think, I think auto regulating training is like, it meets those needs much better. Um, and now, you know, I still do do a lot of prescribed load training for many of my clients, but I'm tending to either modify it a lot more or consider prescribing loads to be loads. I should say to be something that I do for practical reasons, either because the client isn't competent to self-assess well, or, you know, it causes them extra stress and things like that, as opposed to doing it because I think it's the actually optimal way to plan training, because I think planning training without observing the response doesn't quite meet the needs of the athlete as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I look at it as it's definitely a competency thing. So obviously early on, we know that, a lot of improvements made by beginners is going to be very much skill acquisitional based, uh, just getting better at squat, bench and dead for powerlifting. So by them getting better at the movements, they can then express their strength better. And for them, RPE is probably not going to be an ideal loading tool. However, it is a good stage to bring in RPE, uh, literally as just a measure so that every set practice, practice labeling your RPEs. It's a good time to bring in some AMRAPs. Um, to start getting them some context because at the end of the day then you need you need an understanding of, of where you are you can't just buy oh, yeah rpe7 like what does that mean because i know um eric helms uses a good analogy of uh, anchoring so if you gave a, a 10 rep max to a navy seal literally they couldn't do one more rep they would um <clears throat> might they might label that as an rpe6 because to them a 10 rm is nothing but then you give a 10 RM to a complete novice who's never lifted weight before. And it could be one of the hardest things I've ever done physically. Um, I'm sort of going on a, on a tangent here. What was the actual question? <laughs> there wasn't actually a question. I was, yeah, that's why I, I, really I thought just I just started going on a tangent. No, I really just yeah. wanted to take the opportunity to talk myself. Um, but we do have you on as a guest. And so we'll consider you the expert on RPE. Um, yeah. Let's talk about well, I just I just went on a tangent. Yeah. No, it was good. Um, we're all about tangents here at Weekly Weights. Oh. But bringing us back more or less on topic, let's talk about, you said you said that when people are newish to training, you still introduce them to the concept of recording their RPEs. You start getting them doing things like AMRAPs to give them some concept of you know what it feels like to actually be approaching failure in a set. So can we just run through more systematically what the stepping stones are for you getting somebody who's fresh to lifting or has never done RPE-based training through to a um, close to fully auto-regulated system? Yeah, so first, well, firstly, not everyone's gonna end up on a fully auto-regulated system. That's just the, the reality of it. Um, I think the lifters that take their, their training more seriously, and I, I look at myself as a coach, where do I wanna be in five years? I wanna be coaching guys at national level, international level. So those guys are gonna be, obviously have power lifted for two, three, four, five years. So they're gonna have time to really hone in on using RPE. And I would like them to be at the stage where they could fully auto-regulate their training and have the critical decision-making process to make those decisions. However, that's not the reality that we do. We don't coach just those people. So um, it's all about building context with new lifters. So they have to have an understanding of what they are doing, reference points. Um, I don't know if you've come to our seminars before. Uh, you came to our one in Sydney, even with our applied biomechanics stuff. It's all about context, context, just layering upon layering. So the two main ones that we do use are obviously AMRAPs, easiest way. Um, Mike Tashira's RPE scale is literally reps in reserve. How many more reps um, do we have until we're at failure? So 
the best way, AMRAPs. Uh, the other way is literally getting them to do what they perceive like as an RPE 7 or an RPE 8, stop and then continue. Uh, and you'll find a lot of variance within athletes. I've had athletes or lifters literally do 10 more reps at what they thought was an RPE 7. So straight away they go, you're not, you're not working hard enough. And some people will, will respond really well to that. We've had a few that just don't respond at all to it. They just can't grasp it. So I've just... I fully scrap up here. You're not even touching it. You're doing four by five at 127 and a half kilos today. That's it. Um, and then if we're there in the gym, we might adjust it. Oh, it's looking pretty easy. Put it up five kilos. Um, so we, we sort of make the auto regulation decisions, not so much them, mm. but they're the, they'd be the, the main two um, protocols. Just literally AMRAP and then like an RPE stop set and continue. Yeah, I think as a coach, one of the huge advantages of actually looking at your athletes is that you can quite easily make those on-the-spot decisions and say, this is moving better than I expected, we can bump it up, or this is harder than it needs to be, we can bring it down. And so in my own practice, I've certainly found I do a lot of, it's not really auto-regulating, it's me regulating their training when they're in front of me, and then I have to make presumptions about what they're going to do the rest of the time because I get feedback on a delayed basis. I see it you know, a few hours or a day after they've actually done a session. Um, so that's another yeah. place where having a good grasp of RPA would help them self-coach better and get more out of each session. Alex? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's something that I do as well. Um, and I try and communicate with my guys pretty much daily to ensure that, you know, if we need to make changes to, to next week's load or even intra-session, that we can apply that. I don't really like to leave it in their hands because I don't really trust them to make the right decision. And I like to yeah, sort definitely. of in control of it myself. And that's probably yeah. my biggest deterrent from using RPE is just that I don't want to give them the, the control. Yeah, definitely. No, I, and that's why I... Yeah, yeah, maybe it's that. <laughs> um, yeah, we... There is... I have very few current athletes that are on full autoregulation where it's bang, you're hitting top triple at an RPE 9 today, go for it. Um, most of them I will give a, a rep range. Um, for a very easy way to auto-regulate training and tra training volume is using a top set with a projected max and then the back-off percentages. So a top set and then your RPE rating will give you a projected max. Obviously, if your RPE is higher, your projected max will be lower. If your RPE is lower, um, your projected max will be higher. And then if you're doing four by five at 78% of projected max, your training volume will be regulated on your top set. So there you're only giving the opportunity to, to label one set uh, and then the rest of the training volume will be regulated according, accordingly. Um, and what I'll do with those top sets is you literally give them a range, maybe a 10, 12 and a half kilo range um, because I don't think there's going to be that much variance between obviously a top set with a, a fairly new lifter. Um, and then they also just by practicing, they just start to get the hang of what, what they should be feeling. And also I think the, the big part with RPE too is respecting your warm-up sets. Um, a lot of people don't and the warm-up sets is where you're getting literally the best feedback. Um, I know Mike Zordo said the best indicator for performance is performance. So use your, your warm-ups as a performance guide of where you are heading that day for your top set, um, which a lot of people I don't, I see it time and time again, don't respect their warm-ups. Um, and, and that's something I, I, I try and push on all my athletes and we try and push on, yeah, it's a Melbourne strength culture, respecting your warm-ups. And I, I see it in, in competitions too. Like I see people not respecting their openers. Uh, they're already thinking about their third before they've done their opener. And I'm sure you've probably had experience 
experiences like that with, with athletes as well at competitions. Yeah, that's something that Will and I have spoken about at competitions, that the attempt that we've just seen is the, our best indicator for what the next attempt should be. That's and that's the same way that you have to approach um, like a top yeah, set. Top, if you a have top a range set. for an RP or whatever, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Treat your last one to two warm-ups with respect and treat them like they're your top set because they're your best indicator for that day of what weight you should be going to. But again, yeah, as Will said, it's very easy to regulate training when we have our in-house clients that train in the semi-private gym because you can literally just, you can make the decisions for them. Um, but to be honest, I feel like my online clients are actually better at auto-regulating because I don't baby them. Um, I think they they had the whole sink or swim uh, scenario and they, they've had to swim. Uh, whereas yeah, that's in-house how, like, clients... That's how you started as well. Exactly. So, and Just throw them in the deep end. See how they a go. lot of obvious, yeah, a lot of online clients are usually very intrinsically motivated. They're very driven. They want to get better, um, and so they obviously put the effort into learning all the necessary skills to become a better athlete uh, and a better lifter. So we've sort of we've touched on um, on the idea of sort of semi-auto regulated training. You've said you give people a top set within a range, um, infer projected max, and then do back offs that are prescribed from there. Um, what are the options sort of either side of that? So what is, I mean, we know what entirely prescribed training looks like. It's where we've said every set and rep is prescribed. You're doing exactly this many sets and reps with this load. Um, what, what do programs that are more auto-regulated than what you just said look like? Um, and are there any other options that are still sort of semi-auto-regulated, but with a bit of structure in post that you would use? Yeah, so the other options that we use are uh, like workup sets. Um, so if we're doing a four by six, uh, we'll do first set at an RPE seven, second set RPE eight, uh, third set RPE nine, and then we program a, a deload set, which is a 5% load drop, which is something we learned off Mike Tashira and also my coach programs me that. Um, so then you can add literally se uh, sequential deload sets as you need. So you might have two or three after the nine, but the seven and the eight, are called workup sets because they literally give you the feedback to work up to the correct RPE nine for that day. And then the, you can have, um, you, you don't have to just use uh, 5% load drops. I do use seven and a half to 10% sometimes. Um, bigger the load drop, usually the more sequential uh, sets I'll have after. Um, but that's another, that's in the other main method we use, which is pretty much fully auto-regulated. Um, again, can offer, depending on who the person is, prescribed uh, weight ranges for that guy. It should be somewhere between here. Um, and then obviously you're just taking into account, uh, is their training progressing over time? Are they working hard enough to actually, are we seeing some progression in their, in their training? So that'd be the, that'd be the other, the main method that we use. Um, and then obviously with hypertrophy as well, just working close to failure, literally just seeing how hard they can actually push. Uh, and are they, are they working close to failure? Um, but for the, for the, for powerlifting, maybe the two methods, top set back off percentages, and then just fully auto regulated with the, the load drop sets for further volume. And I know there has been methods. We haven't tried this. I'm not too sure about this myself, but, um, regulating those. So if you use a 5% load drop, um, then keep doing each set until you hit an RPE nine and then stop your volume there for that day. That was a method that I learned off Mike Tashira. The only downside I can see with that though, is that the lifter might start pushing to actually keep their RPEs under a nine by having longer rest breaks and 
stuff like that. But that's another method of regulating total training volume for that day. I personally don't like that because I'd rather just keep the sets and reps the same and let load uh, dictate our, our volume. Yeah, so that's, that's that something sense. that I did back with Hanny. Um, work up yeah. to a nine, drop 5% and then keep going until you get to a nine again. And I had yeah. sessions for squats where I do like 10 sets of squats. Yeah. And then I get a lot, which is fucking so much. And I get, but I'd get to my um, accessory work and I'd be completely rooted. And then I'd have some days for deadlifts where I would do one top set of nine, drop 5% and I would do literally one set and it'd be a nine. Yeah. And, and how all that extra work, you know, it's going to affect obviously inter, inter session recovery, week to week recovery. Like there's going to be, um, doing 10 sets of five compared to another week where you're only doing three by five is going to be a lot of work. So we have discussed that idea at strength culture using that. Um, it's something that we haven't lent towards for the, for that reason. We'd rather keep sets uh, constant and that way it gives us an easier way of tracking volume over time. Cause we do use sets per week to track our volume for each movement. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so you've said you introduce people to the concept of auto-regulation by getting them to do AMRAPs, getting them to practice rating the difficulty of their sets and also putting that against, you know, rating a set and then actually continuing it to failure. Um, at, what point, at what point in an athlete's career do you stop doing those things just as tools to teach them these skills and start actually saying, okay, well, now we're going to get you to hit these top sets and then do your prescribed load drops? And then at what point is it, yeah, at what point do you then decide to give them even more freedom? What what are you looking for from the athlete? So just basically a competency thing, really. Like how competent are they and how, how much they actually want to take the initiative in their training. Um, for those people that don't, I just keep, keep them on sort of load prescriptions, uh, rep ranges. I sort of take charge of their regulation and be like, look, next week hit this. Um, I always think that an athlete should label each set that they do because at the end of the day, an RPE is great. Um, a great, a, it's a subjective measure. We're trying to make it as objective as possible with Mike Tashira's reps and reserve scaling, but it's, it's the best objective measure and feedback you can get from your athlete. Um, so it literally just depends on competency, really. Uh, if you see that they're competent enough, that's really the only way about it. And you as the coach have to make that decision. What is going to get your athlete the best results? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what they're coming for. That's what they're coming to you for to get results. Sure. And other than just like experience and competency, are there characteristics of athletes that might make them more or less suitable to auto-regulated training? Yeah, definitely. So there's obviously like, you know, there's highly strung athletes that are very emotional. If they're coming into their session and worrying the whole time about what weight they're going to put on the bar, is RPE good for them? Probably not. They're better off just coming in and going, you're hitting 180 times three today, go for it. That way they can put their mind on that, on the job, uh, just get the weight, you know, put their actual energy into getting stronger and executing their, their weights because that's what they're there for. They're not there to, to master RPE, they're there to get stronger. Um, but then there's definitely athletes who are a lot less emotionally invested in their lifting, can be a little bit more objective. Um, I would put myself into that category because I've just learned to be like that um, and can sort of ride the ups and downs of training because at the end of the day, there is going to be ups and downs of training. Training doesn't linearly progress forever. Um, we have to understand there will be downs, there will be ups um, and to be able to re remove emotion from our decision-making and be objective. So they're definitely characteristics I look for within my athletes. Um, but definitely the highly strung, more emotional, 
uh, I, I, I don't see RPE working that well for them. Right. But if they train for long enough with us, hopefully we can fine tune them to sort of become a little bit more objective um, with their with their training. So one of the things that I personally find harder about um, about like doing RPEs for my own training is actually rating the difficulty of sets when I'm doing them. I find it quite easy and many people that I work with find it pretty easy after like, you know, putting the bar down and having 10 seconds to say, I could have done two more reps or, you know, I could have done one or five or whatever it happens to be. But in the moment, particularly when you're really concentrating heavily on performance, that can be quite difficult to do. How do you go about coaching the athlete to do that well? Or do you tell them to rate it after the set? Yeah, so we, we do like to give the rating straight away. Uh, within the first 10 seconds, we use a what's called a, like the gun, gun to your head analogy or million dollar reps analogy. So the gun to your head is actually, if you had a gun to your head, how many more reps could you have done? Um, a million or no, or, or just how many, every, every rep, no, there's a different one. Every rep that you do post, how, you, you win a million dollars. Like how, how many, like I bet you people would be able to pump out a few more reps. But um, the, you want to obviously label the set straight away. Mm-hmm. Don't let five minutes go by. Don't even watch the video because like videos are misleading too. Um, and also don't let people who don't understand your training have an influence on your RPE. So for example, Didier, one of our coaches at Strength Culture, who I, I coach and I've coached him for two years now, you would look at one of his single, like a set of five and the first rep would look like a bloody RPE nine, but he just different. keeps pumping them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just lifters like that and they just keep pumping them out. They do a set of six, but the first rep look like a bloody second attempt at a, at a comp. So, you know, Alex having a comment on his RPE is probably not going to be ideal because he doesn't have two years worth of, uh, understanding of what Didier lifts like. So not letting people influence you. Um, I know we've talked a lot about the biopsychosocial model at Strength Culture. So obviously the sociological uh, effect of having someone go, oh, that was easier. Um, so even often like Jackson, obviously Jackson Miles trains at our gym now, he'll often be like to me, oh, oh that for when I do a set, oh, that looked at uh, XRPE. And I'm like, no, nah, that was this. Like, But he doesn't have two years of understanding of how I lift. Um, even Potsy, for example, says he struggles to label my RPEs because he, I'm similar to Didier. I kind of move slow and look like I'm going to fa- fail. But really, yeah, it'll be like an RPE 7. Yeah. That's, one of, that's one of my um, huge pet peeves on the internet is people on Instagram trying to rate other people's shit on their posts. Yeah. How can like you make some, that comment? Yeah. Someone's like, oh, yeah, top single at 8. And it's like, bro, that was like a 5. It's like... If they said it was an eight, then they must have perceived like, it to be yeah. that. You're not the one doing that. Yeah, you don't know how it felt. Like it's perceived for a reason. Like the only the only person who can perceive the set is the person who did the set, and their coach. Yeah. Um, so even like Stupas, I'll give Stupas. Um, I often will ask him because we we trained a lot together over the last two years. So he he has a good understanding. I have a good understanding of his training. Like so, I'll I'll take his his um point of view on board for sure. But other people, and I you don't know. You know I don't, well, I don't need it, but, and I, and I, and I tell all our lifters that too, but with the comments thing, we often talk about like, would Michael Jordan be commenting on people's, uh, Michael yeah, Jordan's I heard often, you guys say this yeah, on, the, on we, the last podcast. We always, we always, we always <laughs> talk about it because like at the end of that, like I was watching, um, Sean Noriega's videos and people were commenting like, oh, this guy's not even proper lifting, wide squat stance, big arch. Oh man, he totals like whatever he totals it. Yeah. Like. Is he 77 kilos? No, 85. he's 
No, 83 is their set. Yeah, it's still on the old, the, uh, the IPF standard. Um, and it's, he's strong as fuck. And I'm like, who the hell is commenting on these, on these comments saying, yeah, literally, like, unless it's like Brett Gibbs or Russ or he, like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so, sorry, can you explain the Michael Jordan analogy to those of us who haven't listened to the most recent Robin yeah, it's literally, it's literally, would Michael Jordan be commenting in the comment section? No, Michael Jordan's off winning. Right. Like, that's, that's literally it. Like, it's, don't comment in the comment section. Unless it's something positive, keep your negativity and, like, because, uh, yeah, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, uh, they ain't doing that. And that's, the, that's just the philosophy that we have, like, at Strength Culture. Like, we're off winning. Like, that's what we're trying to do. I'm not, I, I, I obviously don't use social media that much myself. I've got back on Instagram now for business point of view, but I very rarely scroll, very, very rarely comment. Um, just because yeah, there's a lot of negativity out there with it. Um, and I think, yeah, I think people just think be more fucking nice. So, yeah, be Michael. I've noticed Michael Jordan. many of my posts recently, man. I figured you must have been off the ground. Yeah, and no, I was well off. I was off eight months. Mate, he scrolls right months. past yours, Will. Yeah, all that would make sense. <laughs> yeah, Everybody yeah, else yeah. seems to. I've, 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 actually, I've actually got you uh, muted. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> fair enough. Don't blame me. <laughs> At least you didn't unfollow. Still got, still got the follow. Yeah. That's, that's what matters. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't want to burn bridges. Um, yeah. All right. So you actually mentioned before hypertrophy training and it just basically trying to work close-ish to failure. So across the phasic structure, when you're preparing a powerlifter, are there times when auto-regulation is more or less suited? Um, yeah. So they go from that. Uh, more no, I think it's. I think if you've got a competent athlete that can use auto regulation, it's suited in any phasic structure, any part of their training. Um, but with hypertrophy, to elaborate a little bit more on that, something that we've looked into um, is Chris Beardsley and James Krieger. So what James Krieger calls the hypertrophic reps. So I'm sure you probably thought you know increasing volume is what drives hypertrophy, but not necessarily the case because not all reps are created equal. Uh, a one by 10 working at an RPE nine is not the same as doing 10. So one by 10 at a hundred kilos is not the same as 10 by one at a hundred kilos. Um, the one by 10 is going to have a different, elicit a different stimulus compared to the 10 by one for hypertrophy. Cause we need to obviously recruit those high threshold motor units. And the only way we can do that is either by lifting something fast, lifting something heavy or lifting something um, close to the proximity of failure. Um, we're probably going to remove lifting something fast and focus on lifting something heavy and lifting something close to the proximity of failure for hypertrophy. And we need to get those hypertrophic reps that are above an actual RPE five to six. Um, so that's some really interesting stuff that I've looked into. Uh, Chris Beards and James Craig, I've read all their stuff for hypertrophy because I realized hypertrophy was something that I didn't know too much about. So I, I took the initiative to yeah, go and learn a little bit more about that because we do know how how big hypertrophy plays in becoming a better powerlifter. Like the three factors that go into getting stronger, obviously skill acquisition, neuromuscular adaptations and um, muscle size. So at some point you need to get more jacked. And if you look at all the best powerlifters, apart from the big super heavies, they're all, but they would have a lot of muscle under that, all that fat anyway, they're all jacked. Um, so yeah, you need, you need, you need to understand hy hypertrophy training as a powerlifting coach. And getting away from the power lifts as well uh, for periods of time. And I think someone who's done a great job of that is obviously Matt Bartholomew. 
um, who we can all see he's gotten severely stronger uh, from comp to comp. Yeah, How much did he beat you by, Will? Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the scheme of things, not much. But one, in one actual place, kilos, one, one placing in 70-something kilos. Um, yeah, no, Matt is somebody who certainly chews through a very high volume of proximal to failure work in his hypertrophy. Yeah. So when we talk about the purpose, though, then, of autoregulation in, in things like hypertrophy phases, it's really a check to make sure that the work you're doing is effective work yeah. as opposed to just fluffing around yeah so that's where as i said before the 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 volume concept of oh we need to increase volume over time well increasing volume over time just for the sake of increasing volume over time if you're not actually checking those hypertrophic reps you're probably not working hard enough to get an actual hypertrophic response that's where a sound understanding of working close to failure and obviously rpe or reps in reserve isn't is needed um i feel for for all athletes and obviously we you know Everyone makes fun of the bros, but the bros are doing something right because they're all fucking jacked. Mm. Um, so they might not know exactly what they're doing, but they are doing something. And that's something that we've tried to instill a lot more into our training, uh, our own training, the coaches at Strength Culture and also in our clients is actually working harder with our accessory movements and our more non-specific movements. Um, so, and actually hitting RPE7s, RPE8s, RPE9s. Like, a, like an RPE9 is a... It's a it's an AMRAP. You're one one rep short of an AMRAP. Like it should be fucking hard. Yeah, if you can I hope do I'm RPE nine, you should rarely be able to just back up a minute later and do the exact same thing again. That's trash. You know? Yeah. Like, like dumping press forty for twelve and you could have done thirteen. Two minutes later you're not yeah. doing twelve again. You know, you're gonna do yeah. like ten or something, it'll be really hot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um I hope I'm allowed to swear by the way. I swear. Oh, oh absolutely swear as much as you like. Yeah. Um how often would you save those RP8, RP9 sets for? And in which sort of training phases would they be in? I, I put them in all, all training phases, really. Um, depending if we're obviously in a moderate intensity, um, sort of sub-maximal phase, we might leave some RP9s out, but there's still seven to eights, uh, definitely six, seven and eight for sure. Um, but obviously, we know in peaking phases and more strength uh, intensification phases we're going to need those RPE nines we actually have to do some hard sets that's for strength training and I think for hypertrophy uh, I nail them hit RPE nines man so would yeah. you sort of save them for the final week of the block or do you like build up nah. in the week so you go like every week hit it yeah set at, set at nine or set at eight or whatever so with a competent user of RPE uh, I will keep the RPE uh, prescriptions the same because as we know, as we get those adaptations, load should increase um, week to week to week. With people that, this is probably a, a tool that I didn't touch on before, but with newer people to RPE, to get sort of that that progression of loads, uh, we will start them on lower RPEs because typically uh, people will overshoot early on. That is a, so the easiest way to stop people overshooting is just, um, put down a uh, lower RP. So instead of giving, giving them an eight, give them a six and a half or a seven or a six to seven, even a range, an RPE range. Um, but yeah, I don't, eights, uh, we, we predominantly have eights to nines in, in most programs. Um, maybe with the exception of leaving nines out, depending if they're in a little bit more of a sub-maximal uh, sort of training phase. Where, so, where we're acute, oh, actually, no, sorry. If we're trying to build up someone's workload as well, I will leave out RPE nines. Uh, so if I've got one lift at the moment that can't do three back offsets. 
after his psyche struggles. So um, <clears throat> we've been working, we've had a bit of an interrupted phase with him because there was a few other things going on. But after his competition in October, we're going to spend the next nine months going to his next comp, literally building up his work capacity. So that'll mean that we probably won't touch RPE eights to nines uh, because I'll increase his total volume and exposure to those movements while reducing the intensity. Uh, so we can allow for a bit more recovery and, and build up his workload tolerance. So, so an important distinction that a lot of people probably haven't actually drawn out from what you're saying is when you write somebody a four week block, say, where they're hitting an RPE nine in each of those weeks, that doesn't necessarily actually mean that all four weeks they're hitting the same load because that's the purpose no. of the RPE is that you're actually auto-regulating the load for their preparedness. And one of the things that a lot of people find difficult about using RPE training or coaching it is that they can't necessarily prescribe the progression. They actually have to, they have to observe progression across the block if it's successful. So yeah. how do you go about building that in and what types of checks and balances do you do in your training programming to ensure that the RPE nine in week two is a bit better than the RPE nine in week one and so on and so on. Yeah, so that's obviously where guidance as a coach comes in because uh, that's why they're hiring a coach and they're not getting a cookie-cutter program from the internet. So that's my job to make sure that that, that is happening. Um, but obviously, as adaptations occur, if we're, if we're giving an athlete the correct intensities and volume, uh, they should their, their RPE8s should progress each week. Um, like, that's just what happens in training. Um, we, we elicit... Uh, the training, a stimulus, we get an adaptation and we're stronger the week before. But that's where the confusion of, we, and this is something that we've been heavily talking about. I know Jamie put it in the Melbourne Strength Culture Post, but RPE slash intensity versus progressive overload. Progressive overload is a byproduct of the stimulus, not the stimulus itself. So people often get confused that progressive overload is what causes adaptation. But progressive overload is the result of the adaptation. So correct intensities and training volume are what drive adaptation. Progressive overload occurs because of those adaptations. Mm -hmm. um, so you shouldn't be chasing progressive overload as much as you should be eliciting the correct training stimulus on any given day. The other thing is too, I think when people talk about progressive overload, they need to stop looking at it just from a microcycle standpoint. It, is, it needs to extend beyond that. We need, to, we need to take a step back and look at, the mesocycle, the macro cycle, because you're going to get to a point, especially with more competent lifters who have been training for quite some time, that the, the linear progression from week to week to week is probably not going to be there unless you're starting their percentages or their RPEs really, really low. And then are you getting an adequate training stimulus in those early weeks of the training block? Probably not. Um, and it's also, I, it is okay to have little dips like, one week you might not progress. It happens. Um, I typically, from doing two years of it, I've noticed that about week five, I'll always, in one of my lifts, I don't know which one, it's like a draw card, I get a severe reduction in performance. Uh, my deadlift might just be dead. And it's always about week five, always in one of the blocks, but I don't know which lift it is, so I can never anticipate it, which I kind of like. But that's just my own training data that I've gathered over the last two years. But um, that would be my response to that. Um, yeah, long, so long winded, but yeah. So it's more about comparing the last time you did sets of eight, say to this time you're doing sets mm -hmm. of eight, then comparing, you know, two weeks ago, it's sets of eight to this week to sets of eight. Yeah. Cause it, like then there may, you may not progress week to week, but look, typically you will, 
from all the athletes we've coached, like our own scientific studies, you might, might say, and myself, you see that there is progression week to week to week, typically. And there's usually maybe one or two weeks where there's a bit of a decrease in performance. Is that purely a physiological thing? It could be in a, like, in a, you know, there's obviously other factors that go into people's training as well. There are relationships, sleep, emotional, uh, emotional stress, work stress that can affect performance too. Um, so that's where obviously RPE can have a massive impact on managing people's lows to allow long-term progression. But typically progression will be there week to week to week. Uh, but there might be one or two weeks where it's down. But again, everyone's going to be different. It's just like if we all did 75% of our 1RM right now and maxed out, myself, Will and Alex, we all get different different uh, results. I might hit 10 reps, you might hit 15, you might hit 12. Like That's just the nature of it. It's all going to be... <laughs> Alex will get more. Alex will get more than Will. No, Alex is not good at reps. Um, (laughs) Just bench. So, yeah. 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 So. Look, I think what you said about progressive overload, (laughs) you're done. It was a good rant. Um, What you said about progressive overload, though, is super duper important. That's what I was alluding to at the start of the podcast. To bring that all back, if a given amount of training stress is enough to make you better, then the evidence of that will be in improved performance. And because your capacity for training has improved, and this ties into what you were saying about Chris Beardley and James Krieger's effective reps, if your capacity for performance has improved for a training stimulus to be equally stressful, so to actually be equivalent, then the amount that you do will have to increase a little bit over time. So progressive overload is the byproduct of the success of your prior training. And you will, nest, like by necessity over time, whether it's from a short-term or a long-term scale, need to increase training stress a little bit being the load that you lift usually to elicit the same amount of adaptation and continue you progressing. But you don't get people yeah. better if they're not progressing by just heaping more and more and more stimulus at them unless the stimulus yeah. supply was really insufficient. Yeah, definitely. So, um, no, I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's a really awesome note. Um, I guess the... In fact, you've actually more or less answered how do we structure training to ensure progression? You basically ensure that the dose itself is appropriate. So when you guys yeah. track the number of sets you give your clients, what are you looking for before you decide to increase the number of sets or, or the amount of difficulty they have? Yeah, so I, I, I manipulate sets and volume to try and sort of potentiate phases as well. Um, so obviously, um, I like to increase bench frequency in competition blocks up to three or four, but... In prior blocks, I might decrease bench frequency to two times a week to allow for that bit more sensitivity to the stimulus. Um, so that's something that I definitely play with a lot, um, sort of to be able to potentiate phases better. But obviously, just progressive overload of sets, just adding, you don't go from 10 sets to 25 sets uh, of bench, let's say. You go from 10 sets to 13 sets. Then you do that for four weeks or six weeks, and then you go. 13 sets to 15 sets. So it's just like adding a little bit. So that acute to chronic work ratio, um, acute to chronic uh, work ratio is we typically 25% increase uh, across a block. You don't want to sort of, if you're increasing any more than that, you're probably typically could be putting yourself at, at risk of potentially going over your work load threshold. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So that's, that's something we talk about obviously. And that's also where RPE can really helpful because our intensity threshold or work, work threshold fluctuates daily. Um, and that's obviously where I know barbell medicine talk about getting, when you get injured, you have, uh, 
surpass that threshold for that day for whatever it be. So on today I might deadlift and I do 250 for four reps and that my threshold was only 245 and I fucked my back. Like, um, so obviously, yeah, that's where you don't want to obviously progress your workload too quickly because it just, just makes sense. You don't, you don't go from 180 kilo on squats to 240. You take six months to progress there um, or whatever it may be. Yeah. So that's long, long winded sort of rambly answer. But... So if I could sum up what you've basically told us about auto-regulated training today, and then we can take a break. What you're, what you're essentially trying to do is like with respect to the fact that people don't perform the same on a day by day basis, you can use auto-regulation to shape your training so that it's, it's the appropriate level of training stress on a day by day basis. And then if your training is effective, you observe increases in performance across a block or across longer timeframes that suggest that the training dose is appropriate. And when it's not, you can make adjustments to the training dose itself so that within an auto-regulated structure, you see those improvements in underlying performance over time. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think the key point too to add as well is, um, and Luke Tullock actually uh, brought this to our attention a few weeks ago when he presented the MuscleDoc seminars, the big wave surfer analogy. Then a day you got into this to lift heavy weights. Uh, the big wave surfer is a big wave surfer to surf the big wave. So when the big wave is out there and the swells up, he's on that big wave. So on a good day, when you're feeling damn fucking good, take the like, take those big weights in. That's what we. That, I think that's what we do this for. We bring it to lift big weights, um, and you want to see yourself getting stronger over time. So when you're feeling good, the warm ups are moving. Last warm up flies. Take those opportunities to surf the big wave, um, and that's definitely where the RPE is. I feel superior to sort of prescribe loads, but then obviously we have all the other the downfalls of actually having to use that uh that tool uh you know put, put me in a formula one car and obviously i don't drive it the same way as lewis hamilton does mm. but it's the same car so rpe is the constant it's just the user is the variable cool. so we have to get the user up to using that tool but yeah be, be well, the big wave surfer well color me convinced personally and alex as my coach for the next 14 weeks i'm just letting you know that tomorrow i'm maxing out my safety bar pause squad only if it feels good, bro. Only if it's a big wave day. I can guarantee yeah. it's going to feel good, man. It's, I can feel it in the air. Only if it swells up. It swells up, bro. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a really quick break. We're going to come back and talk some shit about mindset. Kablamarino. <laughs> it's That's Will Berkman. Fun. I'm with Alex Hayes. We're with Charlie Afanasius. And we're, <laughs> and we're talking... We've been talking about auto-regulation so far, but now we're going to start talking about mindset because Melbourne Strength Culture has developed a reputation for having a really good gym culture. You've alluded to it yourself. You, you, know, you use the Jordan analogy. You talk about respecting warm-up sets, and you've now got a really strong stable of athletes who are performing really well on the top level. So what attributes are you actually looking to develop in the people that come and train with you at Strength Culture? Yeah, um, where were they? I actually had them written down because I, I couldn't remember them. Give me one. Uh, well, they, they were definitely resilience. Sorry, resilience was one of them because as we discussed before, um, obviously training has ups and downs and I think not being emotionally attached to, to outcomes because otherwise you're going to be very, very sad quite often. <laughs> That's not a really bad advertisement for your coaching. Hey man, if you're too nah. tough the outcomes, you'd be really disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be, dis- be disappointed. Yeah, nah, but 
obviously, um, just being a bit more resilient with your training um, and not expecting it to always be excellent. Uh, you know, you've got that old analogy of training's 80% fucking just good and 10%, yeah, average, 10% excellent, 10% shit. So being able to ride the highs and lows. Um, so resilience is definitely one of them. I actually had, I, I, need, to, I need to refer to my notes. For this Want one. some elevator music while you look? Alex, no, I'll, do uh, I'll, I'll keep, yeah, do some elevator music. Where was it? <laughs> oh, and sorry, being realistic. Just literally being realistic. Like, so I'm all for instilling, yeah, that was a great album. I just, I, I had a complete blank then, but being realistic um, about expectations. So something we're massive on now is, is managing expectations. Um, so we're, we've definitely brought in the concept of setting more goals more often. Um, but, you know, we all learnt smart goals at school, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timely. So obviously setting big goals, uh, and that's something that I've started doing my own training, setting bigger goals. Um, but also being realistic that at the end of the day, whatever happens will happen. And uh, yeah, not to get too caught up in the, into the uh, emotion of it all and sort of just, because at the end of the day, why do we train? People train for fun. It's a hobby. It's not, you know, no one's getting, well, we're obviously getting paid us guys as a byproduct of it with our coaching services. But at the end of the day, we train for fun. We train because we enjoy it. Like that's how we ended up in these jobs. Um, so enjoy training. Like, it's eight hours of your week if you're training four times two hours that should be fun. Don't let it get you down and miserable. And so they're what I try and instill into people. So and, you, men- you mentioned yeah. um, leaving emotion out. Then you also mentioned setting goals. How do we yep. differentiate the two when, for instance, if we don't hit our goals and someone is attached to those goals, how do we not let them get emotional about them? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Um, send them to a psychologist. Um, I honestly, that's, that, that, that's tough stuff because obviously that, that is with no joke. Obviously some people do, do have to see psychologists and, um, they can be really useful for, for those things. But I, uh, I think it just comes back to managing expectations being like, yeah, it's great to have these goals, but also education. It all comes back to more education. Um, if you miss a lift because of the, uh, Technical side of things, well, you've got to get better at executing. Uh, we know the strengths there. But if you miss a lift because you're not strong enough, well, you just weren't strong enough. Like, there's, And you have to educate your lifters on that. So how do you get stronger? Get back to training, work harder, and come back even better. Um, it just comes back to education, really. Uh, you as the coach need to educate. But some people are a little bit resilient. To, no, not resilient. Uh, resistant to education. They seem to... I'm sure you have people that just don't seem to understand. You can say the same shit over and over again, but they seem seem to always know better. How do you um, how do you sort of manage someone's goals if they're being a little bit unrealistic? I just tell them straight out. Just like tell if, them straight out. Like if Stupas came to you tomorrow and he was like, "Hey, Charlie, I want to squat 300 kilos." At the end yeah, of the well, I don't think I don't think he, he would say that because he would know himself that's that's unrealistic. Um, but pretty much stupidsing all his goals has been unrealistic, and then he, he's done them anyway. <laughs> so, you know, there has to be an element of, uh, I think again, just education, educate them on like, yeah, great, have big goals. It might take you a while to hit that goal, but at the end of the day, I always just come back to it, like your third attempt is always going to be a logical projection or a logical extrapolation of what you've done in training. So if you hit a triple 
a heavy triple or an RP9 triple at 250, yeah, you might deadlift 270, 275, but you're probably not going to deadlift 300. Mm. Just, I would. It's just logical. Yeah, yeah. I just would. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just lo- it's just logical. In 400. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, easy. Yeah. 500. Um, <laughs> up there with Eddie Hall. Um, so it's just, again, it just comes back to education, just sort of, and, and the more they understand it, because at the end of the day, the, we understand things from a different perspective because we're coaches. Mm. So it makes it a little bit easier to train because we sort of have the, we can see behind the scenes. Um, I have to remind myself sometimes that lifters don't have that. Mm. They don't understand all the things that we do. So that's where we have to educate them to be reasonable with their expectations. Um, but Stupas probably will squat 300. So let's be honest. <laughs> Yeah, in, in the exercise science realm, and like I know you studied this at U, when um yeah. when you're doing interventions for general population, so people who are you know like fat and need to go walk so they don't get a stroke or something, um one of the things they encourage you to do is think about goals. Um, think about goals as process goals, so goals where you're rewarded for literally engaging with the behaviours that are going to get you the outcome that you want, as opposed to just setting outcome goals. So you set small goals that are process oriented. And if you set them intelligently, you also get the chance of what they call micro achievement. So feeling like you've, you've done something important and reward worthy and notable just by engaging with the process that gets you better. And so when I, like when I talk to clients who are about setting goals in their training, I, you know, I might start by saying to, you know, say Stubas, Hey, you want to squat 300 kilos, like sweet, maybe in 2025 or whatever. But, um, but we go, okay, you've got this big end goal, but what are the things we're actually going to have to do to get you better? And then we start breaking it down and saying, okay, well, you know, for me to squat 300 kilos, I'm going to need to get bigger and stronger legs. I'm going to have to, whatever it is, fix my squat technique, which means addressing X and Y weaknesses, getting more competent at this. So we identify a few things that are like actionable items. And then within that, we go, well, what are the steps to doing that? We pick a few more and then suddenly you've got some things that are near term. So you get like closer to the time that you've set the goal feedback that you're actually doing the right thing they're more achievable and because those goals are part of the process that contributes to the outcome that you actually want you're you're setting goals based on things that are actionable items rather than just something that's often a never never that you might not achieve and so you're less likely to get down about it because you're achieving of a goal that's in the very short term and is literally just are you engaging with the process that we think is going to yield the outcome you want that's entirely up to you you know, you choose to come to the gym and do your mobility for 15 minutes and try hard when you squat and do your accessories with effort. Like you choose to do that. You don't necessarily choose to adapt to the rate that has you squatting 300 kilos in six months, but you can absolutely control the variables that are going to give you the best chance possible within that logical framework. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And that's all the stuff that I've been, I've been listening to the atomic habits by James clear uh, audiobook. Really, really good. Um, it's a really practical, practically applied book that you can sort of integrate into your everyday life. Um, and pretty much what you're, you're talking about there uh, is a lot of what he spoke about. Um, improving everything that is going to attribute to your goal by 1%. So spending five more minutes doing mobility work, drinking half a litre to a litre more water every day, tracking your calories, getting half an hour more sleep every night, um, allowing a little bit more time to train so you're not rushed. Like all those things at 1%, but they add up significantly significantly and they're like compounding interest um and they're going to obviously propel you a lot uh quicker and faster towards your goal and achieving your goal but yeah i, I definitely the smaller goal along the way is a hundred percent 
Um, something we do at Strength Culture is our sort of power list, and we put on shit on there that's like so silly and minute. And I got this off my friend uh, Mahindu, who's a doctor now. He's um, working at Royal Melbourne Hospital, but during his uh, uni days, obviously busy. He was up at five a.m. Plus, he was training, training for bodybuilding. He's done a couple of powerlifting comps now. Um, he would. He told me to literally make lists that have the smallest task on there, like drink a liter of water. So then when you cross that off, you feel like you're actually accomplishing something. So mm-hmm. I make my list for my day and I put the first two things that are piss easy. That is like a two minute job so that I get the ball rolling. And obviously you can just extrapolate that to a bigger uh, timeline. If you want to squat 300, obviously you need to get a, a 600 pound squat first or a 250 kilo squat first, or you need to squat 225 for five in training. So set those smaller achievable goals um, so that you get that positive feedback um, that then obviously, yeah, keeps you motivated to achieve that big 300 kilo squat. But yeah, making the power list, put easy shit on there. It, feel, it actually feels really good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something that has worked really, really, really well for me. Yeah, that's something that I do as well. Like I'll even put like take the bin out. Like enter the dishwasher, yeah, which is like a fucking thirty-second job. <laughs> yeah, for Alex, that's a big deal. Um, and Chris would be thrilled with you for doing that. Alex, and I'm the only one who does the bin. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's like my one job. Wow. Oh, there you go, and you still need to write it on the list. All right, it has, so, it has to go on the list. So you've actually mentioned a couple of sources of inspiration as well for for the Melbourne Strength Culture culture. You've mentioned, you know, like the Jordan analogy. You've mentioned um, mentioned this idea of power lists. Were there any other places where you where you really drew inspiration that you think's helped you in shaping this culture? Yeah, for me, a book that I read probably a year ago uh, by Dr. Bruce H. Lipton, The Biology of Belief. Uh, and if you literally summarize the whole book in one saying, what you believe you will achieve, um, that literally summarized the whole book. I won't elaborate too much on that because if you want to read further into that, I'd highly recommend either getting the audio version or reading the book. Um, he has come from a medical background. Uh, so I like that he sort of crosses the bridge between the subjective faith spiritual area with the sort of science behind it. Cause there is a lot of research coming out in that stuff that's bridging the gap. Um, and I have definitely found that sort of affirming my own beliefs with my training and even other areas in my life. Um, you know, even with the business, we want to obviously be one of the number one strength and conditioning and powerlifting gyms in Australia. We have to, we have to think that first before it actually happens. Um, things happen twice in life, first in your mind then in reality. If you're not thinking it up here first, it ain't going to happen. Uh, it's very simple. So if you, if you're not thinking about deadlifting or squatting 300, you're not going to squat 300. Like that needs to happen here first. Um, so Bruce Lipton's book. Awesome. Um, and trying to think, who else? We've got our wall of fame at uh, strength culture. I don't know if you've seen it. There's one uh, notable character on there that everyone comments on, and it's not. It's not. Uh, no, nah, Larry Wills is still on there. He's still on there. That's Jamie. He's, he put him up there. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's not Larry Wheels. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's Ziz. Everyone comments on Ziz. Um, so obviously, people you know make fun of Ziz and stuff. But in the day, we're still here ten years later talking about someone who, who died ten years ago. But he had a lot. He had a lot of influence on like just that Larrikin sort of stupid attitude that we have at Melbourne strength culture. Um, you know, I think we, we're not, we, we try to not take life so seriously and have a bit of fun with what we're doing. Cause we're going to make it bros. Well, we're all, we're all, we are all going to make it. Um, other resources, obviously. Oh, sorry. You know, the video where he gets a soft serve 
and he smacks it like he orders yeah. the Macca's soft serve at drive-thru, gets it and just slaps it on his forehead and drives Slap. off his soft serve stuff on his head. Like a unicorn. Slaps it on his head. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. He's, he's, uh, I, I, I loved watching his videos back when I was like 17. Um, the other thing is that we have a lot, uh, most of all of all of us coaches, including a fair few of our clients, I, we've all started doing the Sam Harris meditation app. Um, it's a paid for app. It's 18 bucks. Um, it's one of the best 18, it's 18 bucks a month. It's one of the best $18 a month I've spent. Um, it's 10 minutes a day, the meditations. And that has had a massive effect on um, just, yeah, all the stuff we've talked about mindset, being able to hone in on, on, on what I need to achieve in my training and work and my focus and stuff. So it's something, that's a resource that I highly recommend. Uh, and a fair few of our clients are doing it now. And um, I definitely think there is an element of what the mind has, what the, how the mind can affect our physical outcomes in our, in our training. So being able to harness that a bit better, uh, can have a very positive influence on, on training. Um, but yeah, I, I've almost forgotten what your question was and I've just gone on a big, big, big rant here. Did, did he answer the question? I mean, I'm going to be honest. Oh I forgot what the question was about 15 minutes into yeah. that last rant. And <laughs> I think we all forgot. I think you asked about the culture, what resources. That's how yeah, I said. No, we said, what inspirations have you had? And you've drawn yeah, out a few. said Ziz. Nice. And Ziz. <laughs> yeah, mostly Ziz. Ziz. Um, Ziz. Yeah. Charlie, you mentioned to me, um, a few months ago that you had a revelation in your training um, yeah. about your mindset and how, you know, you weren't sort of training as hard as you could have and all that kind of stuff. Um, how, how did this, how did this come about and how have you changed since then? Yeah, basically it came about from like a round table discussion at work where we were seeing there was me and the two Jamies, uh, so Jamie Smith and Jamie Buziotis. And we were talking I was just saying, like, how the fuck has my deadlift not progressed in a year? Um, and when I hit my 277 and a half, I hit it pretty pretty comfortably. Um, and I probably had more in me that day. And then my recent comp, I pulled 273 for an RP fucking 14. Um, it was like, took five seconds to break the floor. And I feel like, so I just, and then Jamie's like, you just got to train harder. And that was all he said. And we were, at the time, we were listening to David Goggins. Mm. Um which he obviously has a very fascinating story about. He was yeah, pretty like, if you listen to his book, heavily abused as a child, uh, which has obviously shaped the way he is now. I think he's got a pretty dark mind. I think he's pretty open about that in his book, but he pushes his body to the limits. So like training for me, it's like my perspective of how hard training is has changed. It's not that hard. Like, yeah, cool. We can do four by six. It's easy. It's nothing. Um, but setting some more micro goals along the way, but also speaking to Bryce. And this, so this all happened very sort of in the same sort of week or two. Speaking to Bryce, and I was like, man, I'm just not happy with like my uh, my deadlift performance and just my overall performance. I think I've got more in the tank and like I don't usually set goals because I don't want to have unrealistic expectations. But then we were both like, well, fuck it. Let's just set the goal for a kilo deadlift at the end of the year. And that's when Bryce actually said to go listen to Atomic Habits and because having the goal then start, you start to act as if you are working if that goal's already happened. So my actions now were not of a 273 kilo deadlifter, they were of a 300 kilo deadlifter. So we could talk about having that, it happens in the mind first before in reality. Um, so then I started going, all right, cool, what do I have to do to get a 300 kilo deadlift? I have to, Jackson was like to me, double 275. So I ended up double, doubling 275, and then the next week I ended up doubling 280. So I went in one block, simply from changing my mindset, I went two and a half kilos above my max for a double, whereas, Three months ago, when was the fitness expert? Three, four months ago, I did 273 for an RPE 10. 
couple of things I did change technically was I started going, I went back to mixed grip instead of hook grip, which definitely helped. Um, and also just started treating my deadlifts as if they were competition lifts. So always tell, uh, always wear the same. I used to, I wear my soft suit, like I treat it. The one percenters, as we said before, improve the one percenters. Um, and yeah, so from there, I've, gone, I've literally gone from 273 to 280 double in one training block. Um, and I'm more than confident that I will pull more than 300 at the end of the year. And that's just all from training. That's all from mindset. So physically, nothing's changed. That was literally just a subjective mindset. This stuff's a little bit tricky to talk about because it is subjective. Like you can't, it's something people will probably just have to come to the realization on their own. Um, but yeah, that was what happened. So it was the David Goggins, Jamie telling me you got to train harder and um, having a discussion with Bryce and seeing the goal 300. And I just flipped it. And I don't know if anyone's seen Bryce's video, which is a really good video on self-talk. Um, and he talks about his bench because obviously for a 105 lifter, his bench has been a little bit behind the eight ball. And just how getting into those negative spirals of self-talk and poor performance. Um, and so a couple of things he mentioned in that video was building confidence with your movements. So I was treating all my reps for my deadlift like they were a third attempt. Same intent, trying to attack it as hard as I can and beat like mindset focused on what I was going to do. And then I started to get compounding improvement in my performance um, and just more confidence, just compounding and compounding and compounding. And then that whole block and got me up to 280 for a double. Um, so they were, they were all the things that I yeah, sort of did very recently. Uh, and then obviously also cultural things as well, like environment, your direct influence of who you spend the most time with. So having obviously Jackson comes to the gym, um, which I actually quite some time ago, I, I actually wanted someone who was stronger than me to come to the gym. Um, so then Jackson showed up. So that uh, I look at it as a really positive thing and it's had a really good influence on me. Also Stupas as well. Like we obviously train uh, a lot together. So having those guys, if you want to be strong, surround yourself with strong people too. Um, but it's all sort of like, if we're, we're talking about all this stuff, Jackson is literally that he's like, I'm doing this, 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 no one can tell me otherwise. Um, whether he does it or not, we'll see. Only time will tell, but his attitude towards it is I'm doing it. Like, fuck off if you tell me otherwise. And I think you kind of need that, man. You know, we're talking about Michael Jackson. Like, do you Jordan. reckon any great... At oh, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. Yeah. I've, I've lost, I've gone. I'm proper. My, my, right out of that conversation. <laughs> <Not good>. <laughs> <laughs> my thoughts My thoughts are going faster than my mouth. Not good um, timing for the Michael Jackson stuff. Yeah, Michael Jordan. But any great athlete at the top of the game, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, I, th I think of Steven Gerrard because I'm a Liverpool supporter. I like... Um, Usain Bolt, do you think they would have been accepted mediocrity and like small improvements? They were fucking aimed big and that's why they're at the top. Like um, champion mindsets, like they, they, they would have just had that. They wouldn't have accepted like a two kilo PR if we're talking powerlifting. Like they, let's go big, let's fucking train harder. Let's like, obviously we're using powerlifting as an example. That's why LeBron, you know, you know basketball, LeBron James, one of the best ever. Like what do you think his mindset? Second greatest of all time. Huh? Second to, to Michael Jackson. Yeah, Jackson. Michael yeah, Jackson. He's a basketballer. <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's something I often think about. I don't know why we accept sort of those mediocre improvements within powerlifting. Like, let's fucking aim big. Obviously, with all the other stuff I've spoken about, managing expectations and being realistic too, but aim fucking big. Do it. Yeah. What's that saying? Um, for the stars and fall on the moon or yeah. something? 
Yeah, no, fuck the moon. We're going past the moon. <laughs> yeah, no, it's aim, aim, aim for the stars, fall on the moon. But you got to aim for the stars, yeah. Yeah, nice. Man, All I right. think that's a really yeah good spot to maybe wrap up that chat about mindset. Yeah, let's have a little break yeah. and then we'll come back with the yeah. questions. Sweet. Kablammy. Yes. Hey. <laughs> All right. Going into state now, the weekly weights onomatopoeic word. Kablammy, kablammo. Um, we are back with Charlie Appanasio and we are going to talk, we're going to ask him the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Charlie, are you ready? Yep. <laughs> he does okay. not seem sure at all. All right, Alex, question one. If you could take someone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? King Leonidas from the Surrounders Spartans. Nice. <laughs> That's the most niche response we've gotten. Why King Leonidas? I don't know. When you just said someone, I'm like, it's got to be someone dead. I've got a fascination with like just shit from back in the day because it's so, so like long ago that it's like so hard to comprehend for us. And um, obviously, I'd have to speak ancient Greek, so that yeah. would be a, a downfall. There'd be a communication barrier. But um, I don't know. I was thinking someone dead. Like there was a couple, couple other options. I was thinking like Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. Yeah. Uh, even I can't really like. One of the pharaohs from the Egyptian times. I don't have any specifics right now. Tutankhamun, um, but the child pharaoh. Or if someone, if I could go with someone right now who was alive, mm-hmm. Graham Hancock. Who's Graham Hancock Graham again? Han- Graham Hancock is a author. He's written the book The Fingerprints of the Gods. He was the first person to uh, hypothesize the theory that we had an ancient civilization more advanced than the hunter gatherer, uh, somewhere between eleven thousand six hundred and twelve thousand. 400 years ago um, that was wiped out by a great flood. Right. Uh, that book was written in 1995. He read a follow-up in 2015, Magicians of the Gods, but now the evidence is compelling towards his argument and a lot of people are swinging across. But he's a very fascinating man, been on Joe Rogan a few times, got a very long and lengthy podcast. I just find him very interesting. I uh, A lot of the stuff he says I just align with really, really well and he'd be yeah, a cool person to have dinner with. Yeah, it'd be interesting to yeah. chat to. I don't know what yeah, would you say. A couple of stakes. We're presuming you're talking to King Leonidas, like after the you know the battle that's in the movie Three Hundred. Is that what you think? Yeah, yeah. we're going after because I want to talk like battle tactics. <laughs> Start like formations and stuff, and we'll talk what? about mindset with him. I'd like I'd like to know mindset with him. Like you're going to, against an army of a million, three hundred people. Like very different to us approaching a, a third attempt deadlift. Yeah. So mindset stuff. Yeah, so yeah, probably easier. Third attempt's harder. So they fight in the phalanx, you know, the funny formation where they all hold a shield and they hold yeah. the shield with their left hand and the spear with the right hand. And so sinister meant left hand and dexter meant right hand, right? So when we talk about people being sinister, the implication is like, you know, they're bad or evil or whatever. One of the reasons is that you couldn't hold, you couldn't, if you were left handed, then you couldn't be in the phalanx. So you were useless to the army. Right. Whereas, you know, dexterous is thought to be good. Like it means you're good with your hands and you can do stuff. So sinister, bad left hand, can't fight in the phalanx. Dexter, good right hand, useful in the phalanx. There you go. And that's, that's the start of a very long, um, long superstition against left-handed people who are uncommon. So I think in medieval times or something, left-handed people were thought to, to be like demonically possessed or some shit like that. I'm not 100% on that. Um, but apparently the number of left-handed people in the world 
is probably underrepresented because people even like when you're when you're a baby say your parents hand you cutlery they're more inclined to just give it to your right hand because they presume you're right-handed so there might be more lefties out there or there could have been more lefties but all the fucking students were killing them for being no good there could be an element of like the nature versus nurture so in the biology belief that book i spoke about before epigenetics that genes Mm. are expressed differently in different people so um if you're influenced such a young child as a right hand and that's what the hand you end up with and then if, like genes that are changed uh, or altered can be passed on to offspring. Mm-hmm. There could be an element of, of that being just that society is more right-handed. And as we've evolved, it's just that trait has been passed on. Being, Absolutely. Being left-handed in sport is such a huge advantage. Yeah. Like, yeah, of course. Like James Harden. Well, like left-handed well, people are overrepresented among creatives and athletes and things as well. And I'm not, I'm not actually certain why we should do a podcast on left-handed people. Um, but yeah, yeah, go on. Sorry, Charlie, you were saying something? Oh, no, I was just going to say like tennis. Like it completely changes the way you've got to play because now their forehand, like a left-handed's forehand is now their backhand. Like, yeah. So it's completely different. Even fighting, like it changes. Because yeah. you're obviously going to train a lot against right-handed people and then you get a left-handed training. Not that I've done either of these sports well enough to well, Connor, talk about. Well, Conor McGregor's left-handed, is it not? Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, no, he is. He is. Yeah, he's got the, the, the wicked left. Yeah. Southport? Southport, correct. There we go. That's about as much Southport. as I know about fighting. What's the other one called? Uh, right normal. <laughs> In North right Port. In North right. Port. <laughs> We're on question two. All right, Charlie, who's your favourite athlete of all time? Yeah, my favourite athlete, um, and it is an Australian athlete, uh, is it Nick Rewalt? Purely because he was, nice. when I was growing up, now you Sydney side as mine or no, I know Alex does because he's very well read in. Who's Aussie Adelaide. Yeah, Rewald. Adelaide. Who's he? But I, I feel like... Centre-half forward, 1st and Kilda. Yeah, the blonde-haired assassin. Um, obviously, people obviously have uh, the common downfall is he didn't win a premiership, but I, I don't think a, a whole a, you know 17-year year career should be defined on one game because obviously he did play in two grand finals, a draw, and the first one, which we was a bee's dick away from winning. So, you know, we're talking about very minuscule moments that, but uh, uh, anyway, that's a, a bit off the topic, but he was just my idol as a child. Uh, I love the way he uh, approached footy. I obviously grew up playing footy um, and just someone that I, I looked up to and always have a, yeah, he brought me my, my role model as a, just cause I watched him as a kid growing up, literally. Are you some kid, they're like, yeah, I am, unfortunately. Mm. Um, they, they, well, like, obviously, when you're younger, they're like superheroes to you. So, um, he was literally, when I was a kid, that's literally who I, I watched and idolised and wanted to play football like. So, um, cliche answer, but no, got to go. Very go good answer. Go with, First, that ain't the gut. All we've had. Alrighty. So, yeah. um, which movie? Who, who else? Oh, just who else have you had? What are some common? Uh, chicks always say Serena Williams. Yeah, Serena um, Williams is a standard one. Uh, have we had any Jordans or anything? We had a few football players because we've had a couple of guys from America, like Hanny said a football player, Matt Gary said a football player. Yeah. Um, what did what did Greg Knuckles say? Oh man, I don't know. Um, oh, he said fucking. He said Steve Nash, which is very weird. Yeah, it is weird. Um, actually, no. Greg used to play basketball. Yeah, he did. Um, so, yeah, and he had his horrifically bad ankle fracture. His mm. foot was like pointing the wrong way, and that's one of the reasons he squats the way he does. Anyway, look, a lot of like NBA players. Yeah, um, Serena Williams, all that, that shit. 
yeah, all that crap. Then obviously we'll chuck a we'll chuck a Stevie Stevie Gerrard up there as well. For me, uh, second well, close, I can cop Steve Gerrard. Used to love him back in like FIFA 09 for Soccer. just the 94 shot power. Soccer is just the yeah. worst. Don't at me. <laughs> uh, all right, it's the world game. It's a world game for a reason. Question it's three. A game for a reason. Yep. Which movie or television character do you most resemble? I'm the professor from Money Heist. Professor from Money Heist. Can you look that up, yeah. Alex? Um, <laughs> I don't look like him, but I fucking I actually had an ex, like an ex, existential crisis last week when I finished season two. It's in Spanish. It's dubbed yeah. in English. I liked it that much that I'm thinking about going back and watching it with subtitles instead of the dubbing. Um, Sergio Marquina. Yeah, Sergio Marquina. And you, wait, you're saying you're like him in character or you look like him? I don't look like him, but there's a deep part of me that would love to, uh, like, there's this little part of me that would love to be what he does, like control. He's the he's literally the negotiator in a big money heist. Right. So it's actually like who fucking, you aspire to be, not who you resent. Yeah. That's like yeah, me saying I'm like James Bond. <laughs> Yeah, no, you spot. But yeah, I don't. I, that's that's as soon as you said, I was like, that's who I'm going to say because um, I don't I don't know who I actually resemble. Like that's fucking a hard question. But I would love like there's a part of me that would love to be him. And you obviously have to watch the show if anyone's watched it. Mm. Uh, they basically they break into a mint, um, and then they basically lock the mint down and start printing their own money. They put all the hostages in red jumpsuits, all with Salvador Dali masks on. So when the cops break in. They don't know, like the cops don't break in, but they don't know who the hostages are and who the who the robbers are. And basically, it's fucking mad. And then the professor's on the outside, and he's the one negotiating with the police. It's mad. It's fucking nah, sick. Sounds it good. Of, it was, yeah. Anyway, so I'm the professor. <laughs> All right. One of my one of my clients actually calls me the professor now, so that's that's good. <laughs> professor Charlie. All right. Question four. Professor. Your life's being made into a montage. You get to choose the music it's set to. What do you pick? So. If you'd asked me this question at any different point in my life, you'd probably get a different answer. But at the moment, I am obsessed with John Mayer um, purely because I'm starting to learn guitar. Uh, so you, you might be able to help me with this because you're a guitar player. I'm a spastic at it. But, um, <laughs> uh, if it's any John Mayer. John Mayer's yeah. pretty good at guitar. Someone He's very good. Yeah. And I just think the way he can make... like my pre, Now that I've started to play guitar and learn some of the chords and stuff, my ear for it or my appreciation has gone up. It's like, wow, these guys are actually like amazing artists and like watching him do like, you know, live. I'm like, fuck, he's singing and he's, so I don't know. I just, I feel like he'd, he'd make some crazy music for the, for the montage of my life to be able to have some like crescendos and see that <laughs> crescendos. Good use of crescendo. <laughs> when did you learn that one? Yeah. A few diminuendos and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A few fucking diminuendos, but um, definitely John Mayer. Yeah. So you just get a custom track by John Mayer. Yeah, custom made Charlie Athanasius. Cool, I mean, professor. we've got a we've got a bit of pull. We can probably organise something like that if we talk to him. I'll get yeah, get our people to easily. talk to these people and see what we can do. Yeah, for definitely. When I went to go watch uh, and they played um slow dancing, slow dancing in, yeah. in a burning room. And we played gravity. Yeah, so that's oh yeah, and you played gravity as well. Yeah. That's my goal to learn slow dancing in a burning room on electric guitar. That's what I want to uh and the, partly the reason I'm learning guitars, I've always wanted to learn it, but I'm trying to apply all the shit I've just spoken about to an, a hobby or a, a task that I'm completely novice to and mm. I'm actually a spastic at. Because um, it's very easy to talk about all this stuff with powerlifting because I'd say 
I'm relatively comfortable with it now. It's very easy to be like, yeah, just just picture yourself hitting it. But I've done a squat that many times. I don't like it. Just happens. Yeah. Um, but now with guitar, I've actually got to apply these practices that I've spoke about to a completely novel stimulus, uh, novel task, and it's fucking hard. Yeah. And you feel you have those like moments of like, oh, hitting the chords, but and then spastic moments again, and then it's just. But anyway, got to practice. John May has probably been playing guitar for thirty years, and he's also the one percent of one percent. He's the Ronnie Coleman of guitar playing. The Ronnie Coleman of guitar playing. <laughs> the Michael Jordan of guitar playing. Man, everybody want to be a guitar Jordan. player, but ain't nobody want to play a lot of guitar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Man, thanks so much for joining us. This has been an awesome episode. Um, your final job well, is to let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find out more about strength culture, just where to go. Yeah, so uh, firstly, I will give a big shout out to our Strength Congress, which will be held um, in November. Those details are on our Facebook page and uh, Instagram. Um, we are moving the venue from the gym to Deakin University. We are getting a theatre uh, because we have sold more than 70 tickets. Uh, and basically, to get up to 200 people is cheap as, so we're going to just go big with it. Um, so if you are interested and you are in Melbourne, I highly recommend coming to that. I will be talking more about what I've spoken today on auto-regulation. Uh, our other coaches will also be talking on a topic each. Um, Jamie will be talking about business blunders over the last three years. Dan, our physio, will be talking about tendon rehab for the strength athlete. Didier will be talking about uh, creating a culture. Um, Jamie B will be talking about rehab, rehab and treating it as a rehab for performance. Um, and then we have Durham McInnes, who is very well known as core advantage uh, as our guest speaker. So that's a little, my little plug in there. But if you are in Melbourne or you want to fly in, tickets are still available for that. Um, that should be really good. If you want to find me, obviously come down to Factory 18, 477 Warrigal Road in Moorabbin. We're always there. Doors are open. My Instagram is quantum underscore lifting. Uh, if you want to, if you're interested in coaching with me or any of the other guys from Melbourne Strength Culture, just shoot me a DM. Um, and we're, yeah, the doors are always open at Melbourne Strength Culture. Like we tell people, if you want to come in, come fucking chat to us. We're happy to <clears throat> happy to talk shit, get questions asked, answer questions, all that all that jazz. But yeah, definitely come to the Strength Congress if you're interested in any of this stuff. And we'll give you one more chance to plug your podcast as well, which is which oh, is yeah. you know now getting turned up to eleven. So what's happening with yeah, the Melbourne Strength crazy. Culture podcast? Well, we are revamping it because we, let's be honest, me and Jamie and myself both didn't put that much effort into it, but we do want to take it to the next step. Um, so we've created a new introduction. Uh, tomorrow will be the first recording um, of a new episode. We are going to try and stick to 30 minutes when it's just us two. When we have a guest, it'll be a bit longer. Um, we're going to do a weekly Q&A where we get questions asked and obviously answer them, just a couple of questions. Uh, but tomorrow we're going through Jamie and myself, our top five success habits. Uh, so that'll be our first introduction. We've got a sick uh, intro. Um, Jamie Buziotis, who is our other coach at Strength Culture, his brother made it, who's a, a DJ slash producer. Uh, and it is fucking sick. I'm actually so excited to, to put that on there. But we've, got, we've created a new creative hub upstairs. I don't know if everyone's seen. We're going to be filming the podcast. It's going up on YouTube. Um, we are trying to, yeah, we've just got to, you know, aim big. As we said, all the shit we said before, if you want to be the best, you got to start like acting like you're the best um, and, you know, start filming it, make the upstairs office look better and nicer and take it to a next level. So yeah, that's what we're going to do with the podcast and yeah, get it, get it up to, up to speed and actually something that people want to listen to. 
Well, I'm sure in no time at all, you guys will be the second best powerlifting podcast in Australia. Yeah. But that, that's the thing. We're actually not going to market ourselves as a powerlifting podcast. We're, we're yeah. going to branch out of powerlifting. So we, we've, um, we're going to have different guests on. Um, so it's not going to be purely powerlifting. Obviously, there will always be littered powerlifting throughout. And people who are obviously interested in strength training are going to listen to it more so than often. But we want it to be so that if someone listens to it, they would recommend it to someone else in their family who's not a powerlifter. Um, yeah. so, cool. Uh, we'll see what happens. I'm just... Take a week by week. And Exciting stuff. And that'll be on iTunes? Yeah, it's on all the, all the uh, yeah, iTunes, all the other, uh, Podbean, all that shit. And it'll be on YouTube too. We're going to be filming it. The, the full video is going up. So Man. I know we've already spoken about it, but when you guys are down next, we'll get you on there. Uh, so that'll be face-to-face around the, we've got a standing table, spinning oh, yeah. mics. Yeah. It's going to be off chops. Oh, very exciting. We should, we should, can we do two-on-two two basketball in the, in the culture? Nah, the pit shark's underneath the ring now. Oh, that sucks. That's yeah. actually good for me. I'm terrible at basketball. All right, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'll let you go. I'm Will Berkman, W.BerkmanPT. I'm Alex Hayes, at Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you. Crazy. Next week. Man. Peace.